The time is December 15, 1988. The place is 500 nautical miles southeast of Nova Scotia. The situation is as follows. The drilling rig Rowan Gorilla 1 is being towed across the Atlantic through hurricane conditions of 40 to 60 foot waves and sustained 60 knot winds. Around noon, the captain of the towing vessel Smith London advised the rig manager that the Rowan Gorilla 1 was in imminent danger of capsize. This is Legacy Survival Stories. Legacy Survival Stories. Welcome to Legacy Survival Stories. My name is Dan Latramoy and I'll be your host. We have an amazing guest today. He's a longtime offshore oil and gas professional, spending his entire career on the drilling side of that industry. He worked offshore from about 1979 till about 2014. Most of his career was in Canada, although he is a well-traveled and worldly individual. He's a warehouse of stories, and we're going to start downloading some of his mental archives today. Please welcome the enthralling Richard Powell. Welcome to the show, Richard. Okay, thanks, Dan. I'll try and live up to that awesome <laughs> introduction. <laughs> All one can do is try, but I don't think you need to. I think uh, your stories speak for themselves. So uh, let's begin at the beginning of uh, your professional career. Uh, so you came, are you from Nova Scotia originally? Yep, born and raised in Halifax. So did you go to school, like did you uh, finish high school and then go on to a vocational school or did uh, you go to do university or go right to work? Or? No, I went to um, public school here in Halifax and then in high school I got sent to a private school in Rossay, New Brunswick. Okay, la-di-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't really la-di-da, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you finished that school, and then uh, how did you end up working, how did you end up offshore? Because if you started back in 1979, that would have been pretty new uh, to the industry for Canada. Yeah, so I, I had been uh, living in Alberta, and I came home for the summer, and, you know, when I needed money like everybody else, and I was told that there was an oil rig off of Sable Island, and they'd be hiring painters for the summer. So I went over and applied, and the first day I went there, uh, applied, the secretary asked me if I had any experience, and I said no. And she said, okay, well, we're not even going to accept uh, an application from you. We're going to want people with experience. So about a month later, I went back again, and the office was packed full of people, and I was lucky enough, I spoke to uh, this gentleman, and he gave me an application to fill out, and I thought, oh, here we go, another application, right? And I finished that, and he asked me if I could go to a doctor's appointment tomorrow, and the following day, could I go to the rig? And so, of course, you know, very excited, I said yes. Yeah, and so, always say yes, and then figure it out. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I got a, a job on the uh, Otico Gulf Tide. Okay, fantastic. So uh, you go to a doctor's point, which I'm assuming then would have been an offshore medical to make sure that you were sort of suitably healthy to go work in a... Yeah, the, but it was, um, the medicals definitely weren't as uh, intensive as they are today. <laughs> you know, he just sort of, you know, cough and uh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Turn your head and cough and call yeah, it Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Okay. So, uh, so does it happen then the very next day? Are you going offshore? Yeah. And then, you know, two days later after I went into the office that time, then I was on the uh, helicopter, you know, uh, you know, heading out to Sable Island. Had you ever been on a helicopter before? No, no, no. So that was, you know, hey, it was all pretty exciting. I bet it was. Uh, yeah. I bet it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a helicopter ride uh, out of the blue. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that, I mean, that's not something that happens to most people in the run of a day. Yeah. And back then there was no training or anything, right? They just took you out there and you got on the chopper and away you went. And, okay. So you fly out there, helicopter flying time. What, what, you know what? I gotta, I gotta ask as a, as a helicopter aficionado, uh, what helicopter were you flying? Was it like an old S61? Yeah, exactly. That was the old 61s back then. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And I still, hey, I still enjoyed, you know, flying on those because they always lots of room and they felt very safe. You had your old window, your own window, if something ever happened, right? And I want everybody at home to take note of that. Uh, those pleasant comments are actually in reference to the commercial version of a Sea King helicopter. S61 is the commercial version of, uh, of, of what we have made fun of in Canada, the Sea Kings. We always make jokes about parts falling out of the sky, but most people who have flown in them, well, there's a reason they lasted for 50 odd years as, as a staple helicopter in the Canadian military, and it's not because they were unreliable. So there you are, flying offshore in a 61 and uh, flying off to an Otico platform. And this is out near Sable Island? Yeah, yeah, offshore Sable Island. It was, a, it was an old, it was a four-legged jack-up, which as the story goes, was uh, designed by Howard Hughes. Really? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. for the folks at home, a uh, quick synopsis, then who's Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes was a very wealthy industrialist who went on to um, to make a, a lot of equipment for the um, for the oil field as well. Right on. You know, drill bits and uh, other equipment. He's a Texan guy, wasn't he? I do believe. Yeah, that's yeah. Really, so the story goes anyway. Right. We'll have to do a little background research on that later on. So you're and on a four-legged jack-up, and for the folks at home, um, you'd have a hard time finding even a picture of a four-legged jack-up now. I think they're mostly went to three legs. Yeah, They have yes. sort of a triangular shape. And um, and again, for the folks at home, a jack-up is called a jack-up uh, because it's a, it is a floating uh, installation uh, with these great big legs that stick out uh, from it. And when it gets to its location, uh, they, they usually use barges or something to tow it in place. And when they've got it where they want it, these legs uh, go down and they stand on the bottom. Uh, and then the, the, the platform can actually jack itself up or down on the legs so uh, it's it's actually one of those things it's a bit of a, a marvel of engineering really yep yeah, yeah yeah it's uh it is it's uh you know and now the the, the rig back then is we had to jack up had to shim it and it took a long time to jack up and now today you know they jack up fairly uh you know rapidly yeah they got some kind of like a big motor wheel type yeah, system yeah yeah they? and they're doing i think like a foot and a half a minute or something like that so yeah. when you say shim it i mean like literally like sort of crank up one side put a put a put a pin underneath yeah. it and then crank up the other side that, put a pin yeah. all four legs going real slow <laughs> How long would it take to actually jack oh, that? Oh, I don't even remember. It seemed to have taken all night. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so uh, what kind of air gap are we talking about? Like how high off the water were you? Uh, back then, uh, I'm not sure what the air gap would have been on the Gulf Tide. But uh, later on, you know, with the with the gorillas, you know, we'd have somewhere between uh, 70 and 90 feet air gap. Okay. So, and again, for the folks at home, uh, when they put these platforms in place offshore, uh, they're trying to allow for the maximum, the biggest wave that they think they might see while the platform is out there. So in, in Nova Scotia uh, and in eastern Canada at large, uh, where the weather is 
basically crappy. They frequently have to put a, an air gap or set an air gap of, uh, as Richard points out, 70, 80, 90 feet to allow for big waves to go yeah. underneath yeah. them because you wouldn't want the platform to get rolled over by a big wave. No, no, that's right. No. So the last you, thing you want to hear is the wave slapping the bottom of the hull. No, that would be very disconcerting. Yes. Have you ever heard that? Uh, no, I've never heard it myself. Really? Yeah. Okay. But I know that I've come back to the rig and other people have talked about hearing it. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Give you some nightmares. Yes. Now let's uh, fast forward a little bit to your where you started with Rowan. When did that begin? Okay. That would have been uh, about 84, 1984. I okay. With about Rowan. 1984. Yeah. All right. So you're now been working offshore in the oil and gas industry for five years or so. Yeah. Uh, and I assume that uh, you didn't just stick with the painting that you started with. No, no, I was, when I came to work for Rowan, I was an uh, uh, assistant driller on the Zapata rig. Okay. So I came as assistant driller, but I was uh, put back to, as a roughneck, a floorman. So for, when, for just do us a favor, maybe for the folks back home, just walk us through sort of the hierarchy of uh, somebody who works in the drilling side of oil and gas drilling for the offshore. What does is, what is, what is that career path look like? Well, you, when you start on the rig, you're as a roastabout which is a lot of scrubbing and cleaning and painting and keeping the decks organized. The grunt work. Yes, correct, yep. And then you move up to floor hand or roughneck, and that's going to be working on the drill floor, you know, uh, handling the uh, pipe as you running the pipe in the hole or pulling it all out and doing all the uh, duties associated with maintaining the uh, drilling equipment. Okay, right on. And then what comes after? So that was roughnecking. What comes after that? Then uh, you go downstairs to the uh, pump room where you are an assistant derrickman. And your duties then are maintaining the pumps and maintaining the mud. So what's the mud? Yeah, I know. The mythical Pe mud. People, uh, you know, think about mud as when you're a kid playing, you know, with uh, mud puddles or whatever. But the mud today in the uh, used on the oil rigs, this mud has a university education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, it's there's a master's. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot into it. Mud's a very important part. You know, it cools and lubricates your drill string. It holds the formation oil or gas back into the formation. So, yeah, the mud's very important. The uh, And again, for the folks back home, uh, in the current oil and gas industry, and uh, of course, right this minute, uh, the whole oil and gas uh, on a global scale is sort of in a bit of a slump. Um, but mud engineer is is literally a university educated position and drilling platforms now would have university educated not just one person there's probably two or three yeah, mud that's, engineers that's that, right yeah. that exist and uh, so uh, to, to to create this mud or mix this mud or i guess are they chemically treated is that yeah there's you know uh even if it's a water-based mud or oil-based mud there's lots of different chemicals that go into it to um you know to, to maintain the mud keep it in good shape well, it's interesting stuff. I, I I have to say, I find the the science of drilling. I mean, it's at its at its core, drilling is is a simple concept. You know, you're taking something, spinning it, and poking holes into something. But the science of it, and how you how you mitigate the pressures, and how and now they've got directional drilling and bending it and wrapping around. I mean, there's some pretty neat stuff there. Yeah, yeah. The technology is definitely is you know has grown quite a bit since I first started. Okay, so now we're into the mid '80s, and we've got our. Uh, sorry, you said you were assistant driller by this point. Yep. 
Okay. And uh, now you're working for Rowan and Rowan. Uh, so back in those days, uh, the Rowan Gorilla series of uh, platforms, jackups, all jackups right. began around then. And you were working on the Rowan Gorilla One. Correct. Yep. Uh, all right. So now we're getting to the crux of our of our today's adventure. Um, and uh, Richard is out there working uh, on the Rowan Gorilla One and uh, and now you're going to have to jump in and fill in on the details. From what I understand, the Rowan Gorilla was being moved from one location to another. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We were uh, in Halifax Harbor, you know, for quite a while, actually. And uh, we were looking for work, and none was coming up. So we were told the rig is, uh, it was going, you know, going away looking for work. And we were told it was either Trinidad or in the UK we were going. Okay. Great, great Yarmouth. So when you say uh, that the Rome Grills were look, looking for work, literally the platform there was it was not being hired. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, no. so the company Rowan was looking for someone. Someone please take this thing and right. put it to work kind yeah. of thing. And so when we left Halifax, we were told we didn't know where we were going. Like it was either Great Yarmouth or Trinidad. Wait. So you left the harbor and they they didn't actually even have it. They just started towing you and they didn't even have a final, destina that, final that's, destination that's, yet? That's what we were led to believe, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I had all my shorts and summer equipment ready for Trinidad and then all my long johns <laughs> and we ended up in the North Sea. <laughs> Note one from the narrator. A few days after recording this episode, Richard Powell contacted us again and updated us with a few more facts that were relevant to the story. One of the new facts that Richard brought forth was a directive from the company Bigwigs, who had instructed the crew aboard the Rowan Gorilla 1 to take the rig's only lifeboat, or capsule, out of its launching davits and secure it to the deck of the rig. The idea behind this was to limit or eliminate any damage that the lifeboat might take while bashing around in the rough weather on the oncoming trip. The only problem with this idea is that the rig only had the one lifeboat, so by taking it out of service and securing it to the deck, the crew would be left without any operational lifeboat to use if things went wrong during the voyage. Now, just prior to the Rowan Gorilla 1's departure from Halifax, there were representatives from the Canadian Government Marine Division who came down for a visit and a routine inspection on the rig prior to departure. When they noticed that the lifeboat had been secured to the deck and was not operational, these government officials wouldn't allow the rig to depart the harbor and begin their voyage without reinstating the lifeboat in its davits. This change, just before the departure of the rig, resulted in some significant consequences later on in the story. I think when when, when uh, things started getting bad, we were like off of uh, Boston, around 500 miles off of Boston. Okay. And we had we'd already been told then that we were heading to Great Yarmouth. Trinidad had been ruled out. So everyone shed a tear for yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Because it would have been happy times working in the, the, the lovely climate of the Caribbean. But yeah. okay, North Sea, that's all right. So uh, we, we left Halifax and... Uh, I, I can remember that, you know, it was beautiful, calm weather. Okay. Oh, and people were saying, oh, well, this is boring. I hope it gets a little more exciting than this. <laughs> Faithful so, words. So, yeah, yes, indeed. So, for context here now, this uh, the platform has left Halifax Harbor. How many people are on it? There are 27 of us on board the rig. Okay. Was that the normal working complement of the rig? No, no, no. Normal, normal working complement was probably up in the 80s somewhere. Okay. So how come only 27? Well, just because we were on a tow, and so we only needed the people to, you know, for... Uh, 
doing all the checks, you know, walking around the rig and doing all the checks, making sure that everything was okay. Okay, so so because it wasn't working per se, like the the platform wasn't working, it wasn't drilling. Uh, so this is really sort of a skeleton crew to just to keep the systems up right. and cook the food yep. and uh, okay. okay, correct, yeah, yeah, all right. So and we had uh, one boat, the Smith London, which was towing us. Okay, and. Uh, I guess, you know, after a few days, you know, the, the weather did start picking up. And, you know, things started getting a little more exciting. But As, uh, as requested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, things, you know, it, there was no, there was, the water was not ever calming down. We were just, I think there was like a couple of different storms. It was almost like a perfect storm. You know, these uh, storms had met. And... Um, and it just kept getting uh, worse and worse. So are we talking a couple of hours of getting worse and worse? Oh, no, we're a couple of days. Okay, so we're into days now. Mm-hmm. All right, so days and, and the storms, whatever systems are uh, aligning, and it's getting worse and worse over days now. So how many days are we talking about here? Oh, I guess it was probably three days that we were, you know, things were uh, getting bad. And like I say, you know, these we were starting to take on water. You know, the waves were, were getting, you know, quite high and coming across the deck. And so uh, when you say quite high coming across the deck, uh, what would the, how high off the water would the deck be? Are we talking? 30, oh yeah. Okay. 20, well, 30, then 40 feet? It, this is a wet tow. I should have told you that earlier. This was a wet tow. Like nowadays, they have heavy lift vessels that they put jackups on. Okay. But back in the day, you know, we were, you know, they they didn't think it was necessary. Oh, so when you say wet tow, you're talking about literally just put this thing down, yep. float it in the water. Yep. That's right. Throw a tow line yep. on it and start pulling. We had all the the legs above us. You know, back then, I think the the legs on on that rig were 504 feet. And so we went ahead, you know, we had uh, mo- all that mostly was uh, above the deck. And so we only had a few feet of leg down below the hull. Okay, so this would be a funny looking picture for, for anybody back home. If you're trying to imagine, if you've never seen what this looks like, if you can imagine a, uh, let's call it a small apartment building uh, floating on the water <laughs> with 500 foot legs sticking out from each corner. Um, a strange looking thing to be sure. And a strange-looking thing to be seen towing through the <laughs> giant waves, but okay. Yeah, and um, so you know there was there was lots of little stories that all happened. You know, while we were in this storm, uh, you know, we we had waves coming across the deck. You know, we had sea cans containers that were tacked to the deck, plus with chains over them and chain binders, you know, holding them down. And we had some waves that were coming in, taking these containers. Breaking them for you know free of their welds and the chains and everything, and they these containers were, you know, moving around. So sea containers that are welded to the deck and, and chain. chained down, yeah. Yeah, and they're yeah. being knocked loose and yes. then just bashing around. Yeah. Oh goodness. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we had a, um, a hatch cover that was ripped off as well. And we had, uh, you know, water was flooding downstairs. Okay, so now you've got holes in, in sort of the main deck, and it's letting water come in. And so now you're taking on water from the top down kind of thing? Right. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so. So, okay, then it was, it was uh, um, we had some submersible pumps down there, and we were using submersible pumps to uh, pump the water, you know, get rid of the water downstairs. But, 
It was, unfortunately, it was a losing battle. Okay, so are we still in sort of a day three, or are we into day four now? Oh, no, we're, it's probably day three still, you know. Um, what, you are know. The, what are the tension levels like of the, for the people on board? Oh, I, I think that, you know, we were on uh, the biggest rig in the world sort of thing back then, biggest jack-up, and yeah, I think that we thought everything was, you know, whether it was a, a little scary, you know, because the seas and the state of the, you know, the storm, but uh, I, we felt safe. Okay. You know, I didn't, we didn't ever think that what happened, you know, was going to happen. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, all right. So you, 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 you're taking on water, but you're still feeling like the situation is relatively in hand. It's tense, but you're still, yeah, but you're yeah. feeling like things No, are... no, absolutely. Yes. Okay. You know, and as a assistant driller, uh, my job uh, is I was up in the radio room, you know, and I was watching the, the thrusters which are like two big propellers, you know, that were help, help, help the tow vessel. And, um, and so I was, I, I was hearing all the radio comments back and forth, you know, uh, between the boat and, and the rig. And uh, the captain of the, uh, of the boat, he this, told... This is the Smith London? Yeah, the captain okay. of the Smith London. You know, he was telling us what he was seeing from his point of view. And he told us that uh, he was reading uh, another case where uh, a jackup was being toasted. I think it was over on the, on the West Coast. And uh, he talked about the characteristics they were explaining on how that rig was behaving. And he was seeing the same characteristics in us. And, you know, and he said that that rig capsized and sunk. And so he was seeing the same characteristics, you know, uh, uh, the way the rig was floating. So he's just like reading a case study kind of thing? Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. You know, and um, we also found that the rig was starting to list to the aft quite a bit. And upon, uh, I guess, so we had actually our rig welder went down inside, you know, the, the, our... our uh, our, the, our tanks, our preload tanks. What's a, I guess, sorry, okay, what's a preload? A preload tank is when we get the rig on location, we have all these preload tanks that we fill up with water. And that is going to, that attempts to put uh, what what a hundred year storm would do to the bottom of the legs, to the, to the legs, the Oh, reaction. okay, so you're sort of artificially stressing it almost as right. a test type yes. of thing. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, we found that these tanks... Um, we're getting some leaks in them. You know, you had like close to 500 feet of leg, you know, above above the rig. And so when it was moving, it would have been flexing the hull. Okay, a fair bit of torque on it. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. And so these, when things were flexing, then the, the hull started to open up. <laughs> and then we started to take water into the preload tanks, you know. And uh, so... That was, you know, our handrails on the after the rig were always staying under the water by this time. Okay, so it's listed badly enough yeah. that, that, that you're, the, the top deck is basically touching the water the whole time now on the backside. Correct, yeah. Okay, wow. You know, and that's what the captain of Smith London told us is that we're down there and we should be coming back, you know, but we're not. We're always staying under. So I know he, he asked us at that time if we had our survival suits on. And we didn't yet, but once he asked us, then that was the next thing we did. So uh, let's let's rewind for before he asked yeah. you if you had your survival suits on. <laughs> were you still feeling reasonably relaxed and in control of the circumstance? Well, uh, you know, I, I know that there were, uh, I guess there were some people that were worried. You know, um, just you're only in a big storm. Do you, you know? Do, were people getting seasick? 
Not at this time. I don't think anybody was seasick on the rig okay. while we're on the rig. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, once once we were in the capsule, if we want to jump that far ahead, but once we were in the we'll, capsule, the seasickness started. We'll, 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 okay, we'll get to that. that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. So the captain of the Smith London is asking if you're in your survival suits yet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that that question must have uh, created some pucker up moments. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, it was, you know. And not only that, but he told us we were survival suits, but we should be preparing, getting ourselves ready to abandon ship. Oh, dear. Yeah, so that was, you know, that was the last thing I think that any of us were really thinking about at this point in time. You know, we were still, you know, battling the water downstairs and, uh, you know, so, you know, this is this is the only thing we had. So who's in charge of your platform? Who's in charge of the rig? Uh, well, we had, uh, uh, the rig superintendent was on, but you okay. know, he, he was, he was. So there. you did have a senior person who was meant to be in charge of, yeah. of the rig. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what were the, what were their thoughts on this? Were the, were the well, I think that um, we were all sort of surprised, you know. And I I, I guess also um, our tow line from the Smith London had parted too. Okay, parted. Yeah, I, I, I should I should have at home parted being a fancy word for broken. Right. Yes. So so we were uh, on our own then at this time, just you know, uh, at the mercy of the storm, so to speak. So now you're just floating. You're just drifting, basically. Yes. We we use the thrusters to try and keep us into into the waves, right into the storm. But I don't think that was that wasn't working very well. Well, that it's. Uh, the thrusters on that, I mean, it's not a ship, is it? it um, I'm guessing that the thrusters would have limited ability to, yeah, to really maneuver that. Yes, thing. well, we, we didn't have rudders, so you would have to alternate RPMs on one thruster to another, you know, for, for, uh, for to steerage. Try, to try and create some steerage, okay? Right. yeah. All right, so, okay, so now you, you're, you've, you've parted the tow line, you're listing badly, uh, still managing the water, and then the captain of the Smith Lennon starts talking about immersion suits and abandoning ship. Yes. All right, yeah, so yeah, yeah. what happens now? Well, you know, uh, we go about, you know, uh, I think we, the, uh, we had to phone town, phone Houston, and tell them, uh, you know, what was going on. You know, we had some uh, uh, strong radios at the time. Um, what kind of radios would they have been? Not two-way, but they would were... You, would you have been using satellite phones maybe to... No, no, we didn't We didn't have a satellite phone on board that I'm aware of. Okay, all right. So when you say call Houston, was that like uh, yeah, use the radio uh, to call uh, uh, the ship and yeah. have the ship call the... No, no, no. We, we spoke to uh, Houston directly. Every morning back then, uh, the rigs, all the rigs in the Rome fleet would get on a, uh, on a phone call and give the uh, Houston office uh, an update of what the operations were, you know, people on board, weather, just, you know, tell them what's going on. Okay. And so I think that morning we had had uh, uh, the phone call, but we didn't, uh, we hadn't had this conversation with the captain of the Smith London yet. So after the, the where are your immersion suits conversation? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a, after we after that conversation, then they would have called uh, uh, Houston and let them know that we were abandoning ship. 
And again, for the folks back home, uh, Houston is the North American epicenter of all all things oil and gas. Uh, most of the of the major oil and gas organizations have their offices in Houston. So, um, although we're talking about Rowan here, you could say Exxon, you could say Shell, you could name any of the any of the big major companies. And when they say call Houston, that means calling yeah. the head office. Right. Correct. All right. Yeah. So, what is what is a head office? Do they do they have any direction, or do they just go? God well, speed, we we had we had some questions for them. You know about civility and the rig, and um, in any way they were going to get back to us. And uh, by the time we had decided to abandon the, uh, the rig, they still hadn't gotten back to us. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's what I want to hear from. That's like calling 911 and saying, you know, I'm bleeding out here, and they're like, okay, stand by, we're going to talk to a doctor and then call you back. Like what? that's not what I want to hear. Yeah, from but I office. think they had some engineers looking into our problem too. Oh, okay. They were trying to figure stuff out as well. You know what what would be our best, you know, case scenario, what should we do? But somewhere in between you updating them and them looking into this information, lo and yeah. behold, uh, there's not enough time. So uh, how does the decision, so you guys did abandon, you abandoned ship? Yes, yeah. We. How did that decision get made then? Was that from the Smith London? Well, no, they didn't sort of make the decision. I mean, they, uh, for sure, they are the ones that are, uh, you know, giving us our, our options you know, what they're seeing, you know, and, and these guys were sailors. We weren't sailors really, right? You know, so they had, they had the experience that we didn't. And so, yeah, when, when they told us and uh, we'd made all the important phone calls, um, you know, uh, May Day that we were abandoning ship and uh, we all get into the capsule. And uh, when <coughs> we were all in and everybody was, uh, uh, had their seat belts on, and we pulled the D-ring to lower into the water, and then we could not get the uh, the hook released. You know, that's supposed to be a weight release hook. Yes. So we yep. couldn't get that released. Uh, you know, it wasn't releasing. It was sort of, you know, tugging us around. So I remember the uh, barge engineer, he went for, uh, he had a ratchet that would fix on, that would fit on there to open the hook. And I think before he even got it on there, there was a big lurch, and, and we came free of the rig. But the, uh, the captain of the Smith London, he told us the story that he was watching us abandon. And when he saw the capsule go under the water, he turned around to his crew and said, they're gone. But then, but then, you know, a couple seconds later, we popped up and we're, we were going. We had the motor going and we spoke to the Smith London and they gave us a course, you know, because we want, they wanted to get us away from the rig. They didn't want us getting tangled up in the rig, hitting it and... Or God forbid, if it if it capsizes those five hundred foot legs, you wouldn't want that coming down on top of you. No, no, exactly. So he gave us a course to uh, steer to get away from the rig. Note two from the narrator: During this podcast, I got so lost in Richard's story about the lifeboat misadventures that we both lost track of what happened to the rig after the lifeboat abandonment. According to Richard, the rig was now drifting on its own, foundering in the large waves and open sea conditions. The nearby vessels reported that the legs of the rig, some 500 feet high, were listing back and forth across a huge arc. Within an hour of the lifeboat abandonment, the entire rig actually capsized, with its 500-foot legs splashing into the water close enough to the lifeboat to cause the people inside to fear for their lives. Although thankfully, the legs did in fact miss the lifeboat. 
I think it was only probably a couple hours, you know, the sea state was so high and wicked that our, um, our cooling water inlet was coming out of the water. And so oh, our, for, for your, for your lifeboat, for, for the your life, capsule. yeah, for the lifeboat. So anyway, the motor overheated and that shut down. <laughs> so, but actually, because uh, you weren't having a bad enough day, yeah. <laughs> you need a broken down lifeboat motor. So, but actually, I think I know I was relieved, and maybe some other people were, because that diesel motor was overheating everything, right, so much, and uh, and the smell of the diesel. I think that all contributed, you know, uh, to my seasickness anyway. Okay, so now we're back to the seasickness. Yes. Uh, how 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 long did it take? Oh, I think that we were only in the water a few minutes, you know, before I was sick, and I wasn't the first one. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Did anybody not get seasick? I think that there were a couple, uh, uh, you know, two or three people. We had two girls on board. I don't think either one of them got sick. Really? And there were one or or other two, one or two more guys who never got seasick. Okay. Most of us all had a turn at it. Oh, yeah. Good for them. Lucky them uh, dodging that bullet because I'm not prone to seasick, but I certainly have been seasick and... That is that is a rough way to spend time. Right. So now you've been uh, you've abandoned ship. Uh, you're in the capsule. You've wrestled with the the, the hook release, which didn't work properly, but right. you one way or another got free of that. Uh, you're now floating free, and very shortly thereafter, the seasickness begins. Uh, and so who's around you now? You've declared Mayday. So the Smith London, I'm assuming, is still there. Yes, the Smith London is still there, and. That's one of the things I have to say that, you know, for people at sea, because there were uh, a couple other ships that all, you know, came and stood by and waiting to see whether they could assist us in any way. You know, and we also had one of the uh, Canadian uh, destroyers with uh, with a Sea King on it, and they were coming out and they were going to uh, maybe attempt a rescue as well. So how many vessels? So we're talking the Smith London. We're talking the destroyer, and then a couple of like commercial. Yeah, vessels? yeah. There were some other ships that stood by as well. There was one other ship, uh, a big uh, ship that was going to stand by to maybe uh, you know shelter us. When oh, we were... big enough ship that it was going to try and block the wind. Yes, and the waves yeah, yeah. Okay. So when, when the rescue uh, took place. But as it turns out, the, uh, the, I don't know whether something happened to, was it on the ship or the Sea King? But anyway, they, they notified us that they weren't in any uh, shape to make the rescue. And so it was the uh, captain of the Smith London, and he launched a little rubber Zodiac. And I don't know what size motor they had on the back of it, you know, 9.9. But they made several trips back and forth from the uh, Smith London, you know, uh, to the life capsule, taking three at a time. So walk us through that then, this little little dinghy bobbing through these huge waves? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well as it turned out, we had a diabetic on their uh, our cook was a diabetic oh so in in the capsule yes and so anyway he was you know he'd lost left all his medicine and everything you know on, on the on the rig and so they were going to come with some fresh fruit for the diabetic and batteries too for the radios because we we you know we had radios that we were in uh, contact with them okay so you were speaking to these people regularly okay. yeah 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 and it's not only them, but, you know, we had one of the Aurora aircraft. Well, there was a, a couple, you know, the time we were in the capsule, the Aurora aircraft were always um, around too. You know, you could see they were, uh, they feathered two engines, two of their props. And so they were just cruising around on two motors, just, you know, they could main, you know, to save fuel. And they were always, always with us as well. 
And so uh, you had a whole you had a whole sort oh, of fleet of assets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we out were there to try and help. Yeah, yeah. And, and that made you feel very. That sort of gave you a lot of comfort too, right? So what's I was just going to say? What, what was the morale like inside? I mean, it's obviously it sucks getting seasick and everything, but at the same time, you've got radio contact. There's 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 airplanes out there. There's ships out there. So what was it like inside? Well, it was. Um, I guess it was pretty tense, but we we did our best. You know, there was a little bit of uh, singing some songs for a while and stuff like that, telling some stories. Okay, any any songs you you any, you remember the songs? I oh. What does one sing when we're getting seasick in a life capsule? I've seen pubic hair, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one was sung. <laughs> I know that one was sung. That was uh, um, Johnson & Johnson, or uh, who was that? I'm not sure <laughs> who, who sang that one. I know there were some few jokes, you know, like we had two girls, and I think someone said, you know, made a joke to one of the girls, said, you know, this could be our last chance. And she said, yeah, not today, I got a headache. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so but, everybody trying to sort of keep the morale. Yes, yes that's the, right. Uh, keep, yeah. keep the spirits up a little bit. Yes. Yeah. How how, and, how bad was the the seasick? I mean, I'm assuming you were talking about the, that there was uh, what did you say three or four people that weren't seasick, and everybody else is yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah, pretty powerfully yeah, yeah, sick. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm not sure what the what it would have smelt like after we had all left it, but I'm sure it wasn't. Yeah. Well, the, it was uh, a nasty spot, a, a nasty place, that capsule. I, I, I'm sure it was. I've uh, spoken with uh, one of the people that was uh, in, the, in the capsule with you, and um, it being, what are we at here now, 30-something years later, 34 years later, um, and uh, I think he still has no sense of smell. Um, gone, gone forever. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was the coxswain on your boat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So there you are. You're on the boat, uh, and you've got a diabetic. Was was that getting to be a severe circumstance with the diabetic? Um, I don't think it was severe, but uh, I think the captain of the Smith London was using it to his advantage. You know, the seas had come down at this point in time. Uh, you know, how high did they come down? Were they probably somewhere between six and nine feet, somewhere around there? Okay, so still not nothing. Like not a nothing sea state. It was still Oh, yeah, yeah. It's still, you know, for a little rubber Zodiac, yes. And so there were two guys in the Zodiac. And I know one guy had uh, um, like a dustpan. When you're sweeping the floor, he had a dustpan and he was continually... Um, bailing the rubber, the rubber raft. It, oh, it, so, it, it leaked. So your, so your and, rescue and take, boat was... Take, I don't know if it was leaking, actually. It was just taking on water from the high seas, right? Oh, okay. The okay. high sea state. But he was continually using, yeah, uh, using that to, to bail the boat. So when you say that the captain of the Smith London was using the... Do you mean that he was sort of using the diabetic as an excuse to, like, to, oh, let's get this rescue underway? Well, what he did is he said, okay, guys, I'm coming over. I've got some fresh fruit for the diabetic and some new batteries for your radio. But once we open those doors in your life capsule, if anybody jumps in, we can't stop them. So he made trips back and forth several times until he'd gotten all 27 of us out of the Until he dropped off all the fruit and batteries that he could. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and then we we all jumped in there two or three at a time. So let me ask this, why... Why even um, use the excuse? I mean, why wouldn't they come anywhere? Or was the sea state still rough enough that there was concerns about it? Well, there was, that's right. And the Navy had said that they wanted, they didn't want anybody to do anything until they got there. 
Uh-huh. So, okay. you know, they, they, I think they had a plan, but, you know, their plan didn't work out because, of, you know, you know, the stories, you know, about the, uh, the Sea King helicopters are, you know, they're famous too, right? Okay. Yes. You know, so the whatever. The aforementioned Sea King yeah, helicopters. Yeah, yeah, So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so that something happened there that they couldn't make it. And so it's then that the, uh, captain of the, uh, Smith London decided to, you know, formulate his own plan, you know, to bring us fresh fruit and batteries or to take us all back to, you know, the Smith London. Okay, right on. So, all right, so you getting picked up two and three at a time, transferred back over to the Smith London, and how are they getting you up on the Smith London? That's they a had, uh, boat. you know, they had what he called the uh, rope, rope ladder hanging over the side. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. a scramble net kind scramble of Scramble net, exactly. So we, we, were, we were climbing up on that. And I can say that when I put my leg over the handrail and got on the Smith London, you know, I was, there was a Heineken thrust in my hand right away. Wow. <laughs> you know, the Dutch, Dutch, so yes. they had lots of Heineken on board. Fantastic. So, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, when I wasn't drinking the beer, I was drinking water. I was so thirsty because, you know, after so many hours in the, in the capsule, we did, we did break into the rations. And passed around, you know, uh, some, you know, the cans of water. So okay. because we were all, everybody was getting thirsty, you know. And as far as, you know, the food, there's that chocolate that they have in the... Uh, listen, you, that's a, that's some fancy lifeboat I've never seen. The only rations I've oh. ever seen <laughs> lifeboats is those little, uh, they look like, you know, Kirby biscuit type things. It looks like oh, really yeah. old, old shortbread or something. No, they had some kind of a chocolate covered biscuit or whatever. And they passed those around. I didn't try that, but they tried them. But I don't think that anybody was that hungry that they wanted to make a meal out of that stuff. No, well, no, that's, uh, I think it's there for necessity as opposed yeah, to enjoying yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're on this Mint London, the beer gets thrust in your hand, everybody's <laughs> hugging and everybody's Yeah, sort of, yeah, uh, everybody's wow, that was yeah, quite yeah. a day. Yeah. So how long were you actually in the in the, in the capsule in the lifeboat? I uh, for 24 hours. Okay, 24 hours. Yeah, Doesn't yeah. seem that long, but that's a long time to be strapped to a seat Well, it, I tell you that, you know, uh, I had my watch on and you'd be there and you know, you'd be sick and feeling terrible and it felt like hours had passed you look at your watch it would be minutes had passed you know so it was a it was a long ride in the capsule for I sure i bet it was i bet it was but yeah. everybody survived is that yes yeah yeah no every that's right person. yeah it's good story it all had a good good ending so so you get on the smith line i mean what did they try and tow the lifeboat in or they just let it no that i'm not sure whether some of the one of the boats that was standing by did they try and get it you know, because I'm sure those capsules are worth, you know, a lot of money, you know, themselves. I, I would I would think they would bring that back and pass it to a university for study or something. Well, yeah, I, yeah I'm not sure what happened to it, but I think one of the boats had, had tried to uh, to get it. But, you know, we just, the Smith Landing wasn't in any position really to try and, you know, grab the life capsule. So then. so you get on the Smith London and they that's it you just uh, sort of turn head for mainland and head for port and Yeah yeah we head up for head up for Halifax straight back to Halifax how yeah. long did it take you to get back to Halifax Jeez I think that it was probably uh, a day maybe close to 2 days You guys just probably sleeping Oh yeah for sure rusting yeah. and yeah 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 yep. get those uh, give me the pills put me to sleep wake me up when we get there Yeah 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 Fantastic. doing your laundry and cuz all the stuff you were in wasn't very you know <laughs> So, all right, so you make it back safe and sound. Congratulations for that, by okay, the way. Okay, all and, right, uh, thank wow, you. Wow, what an amazing story. So let me ask this then. Uh, what would you do different? If we could go back, let's say, maybe we'll do this in a couple of phases. You're 
in Halifax and you're about to be wet-toed. You're not sure if it's Trinidad or, I think, Port Yarmouth, you said? Uh, uh, Great Yarmouth. Great Yarmouth, Yarmouth over in the UK. UK. Um, Anything you would do differently at that point? I'm looking back now. I don't think there was anything that, you know, I could sort of do myself, you know, but I I know the industry, the whole industry has changed. You know, there's very uh, few uh, short toes. They'd only be short if they were in field. I think now all all long toes will be done with a heavy lift vessel. Okay, so not not doing the wet toes you described. They loaded onto a a great big barge of some kind. Right, yeah. Okay, so uh, now let's fast forward to the weather picking up, and um, you guys are fighting the fighting the, to, to keep the water out, although you said you were f- not feeling too much discomfort at that point, but anything you would do differently somewhere around that point? Um, yeah, no, I don't think, I think that we were sort of doing, you know, what was, what was required, you know, we had uh, some centrifugals going downstairs in the pump room to uh, pump out the water there, and we also had, like I say, some submersible pumps that we were using downstairs. Um... You know, yeah, I think we were doing, you know, what we could, what was necessary at the so time. Do, from a personal preparation standpoint, uh, like anything that, you, I mean, you worked in the industry for a long time before that and after it. You worked for many more years uh, after that, which is which is fantastic. So right. obviously it didn't scar you so badly that you swore no, off no, the industry. No, no, that's right. So, but, and you've, you've been in the industry long enough to see some of the changes, uh, the evolutions in the training, some of the equipment has gotten a bit better here or there. Uh, I'm just uh, curious if any any particular things that uh, when when Richard Powell looks at this, he goes, you know what? I'm glad this happened as a result of this, or or I wish they would fix this part. Well, okay. One of the things is we would have to go out on deck to look in to look in the preloads to see if we were taking on any water. Nowadays, they have uh, with the technology, they have uh, sensors in those preload tanks that will pick up any water that's coming in them. Okay, so you don't have to physically go out on deck and be at right. risk, be exposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, no, no, that's right. You know, for our, our welder to get out there then and go down there inside the preload to look at things, you know. Yeah, I don't think you'd see that happen, you know, like that anymore. People are taking you know, more precautions. I don't think people are, are as risky as they used to be either. You know, people are learning from all the prior mistakes that everybody else has made. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's the purpose of the uh, the, the training programs and the, uh, the 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 evolution of the equipment and and the safety regime that's in the offshore now. I mean, it's 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 not unreasonable to say that let's say the early days of the eighties were a little bit wild westish in the offshore. Oh, absolutely, they were. And, for sure. Uh, but yeah. now, when you look at the statistics, uh, you could compare. We often joke, uh, or I've heard the joke joke said that um, you could take you know a, a crew from an offshore platform right now. Uh, if you could somehow teleport them to a space station uh, circling the Earth and pick them up a month later, that space station would be safer uh, when they left than when they arrived. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Uh, that's a great, that's an incredible story. Uh, I want to thank uh, Richard Powell for joining us here at Legacy Survival Stories. Um, anything else you want to add before we sign off? Yeah, no, no, I think that's, you know, that's a short version of the story for sure, you know. Like there were different things that happened, for instance, uh, you know, when the auroras were flying overhead at night, you know, they asked us all, they said that they have some uh, cameras on board with some very bright lights and they want to take some pictures of the capsule in the water. 
So they said, you know, close your eyes. Well, they gave us one and said, okay, close your eyes. We're going to take the pictures. And when they came overhead, even with my eyes closed, I could tell that these, these guys had some bright lights on us. Really? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never heard well, that part of the story before. Well, and that, the pictures, I was wondering if survival system even had those pictures. Because I've never seen the pictures, uh, you know, of us in the water from taking from the... Never seen, never heard of, uh, to my knowledge. It might be around somewhere, but that's the first I've heard of it. Well, yeah, I've never seen them either, so. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting. Uh, Anything else you wanted to add? Um, Jump is not right now, I think. Okay, well, that's just fine. No, that's great. Uh, So I'll thank you very much for uh, joining us for this story. And um, I feel like there might be one or two more stories um, in in the mental archives there, which uh, (laughs) I would love to have you back sometime and join us again. All right, great. I'd like that. Thanks, Dan. If you have a story to tell or know of someone who does, please contact us at Legacy Survival Stories, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find us at Legacy Survival Stories.buzzsprout.com. Legacy Survival Stories.